here we go again. It's almost as if this is on repeat or it's this two steps forward, one step back type of philosophy. In reality, I think it's probably more like two steps forward, one step to the side, one step in a circle, followed by three steps of you falling over, plus one step backwards, and then maybe a step forwards. And we're talking about pay in women's cycling, money in women's professional bike racing, and the weird set of circumstances that brings us back to this discussion of how it's not nearly enough, it needs to be better, we need to do something right. You looked at the world championships in cyclocross and you say, oh, more people watched the women race than the men raced. You look at Umloop, which happened a couple weeks ago. The numbers for the women's version of the race, the ratings there were through the roof compared to the men's. But then you start hearing about the stories and the controversy around the women being paid only a fraction of what the men are paid at that race. And now there's a crowdfunding for Strada Bianchi so that the women can make almost kind of sort of a percentage of what the men are going to make as far as the race winner. But it belies the same point. Money in professional bike racing is not equitably distributed between the genders. But it's not even just that. It's not equitably distributed between professional ranks. Women who are professional lawyers, doctors, teachers, businesswomen, they are making way more money than the women who are racing professionally. And that is something which needs to be rectified for the health of our sport moving forward. My name is Rob Kelly, and this is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. The question you're probably going to ultimately want me to answer, which is a question that I can't really answer, is, well, what do we do about it? What's the proper goal? Where is the finish line for this particular issue? Well, the finish line is when women are paid more. And the goal is to get them there. Is that going to happen through this podcast? Is that going to happen this year? Is that going to happen through the next five years? Probably not. But the goal is to provide you with education and information so that we can make steps forward. We all stand on the shoulder of giants or on the shoulders of those who came before us. Even incredible inventions that we think were created by one person were not. They were things that were built from the time before. You look at the steam engine and everybody's like, well, Samuel Watt built that. No, he didn't. He made an improvement off of an earlier design from one person who made an improvement on an earlier design and an earlier design. It wasn't created out of whole cloth. The same with computers. Arguably the single most important invention in the contemporary era. Computers weren't created just by IBM or in the 1960s or anything like that. They are a design of a system that pre-existed electronics. The Loom was the original computer. It had a punch card that went with it. That punch card became the ones and zeros of the binary language. We stand on the shoulders of giants. And progress that we see today is the end result of incremental steps that happened along the way. When we look at salaries and women's professional cycling and this ambition and goal of making it so that a professional woman 
cyclists can actually survive exclusively off her income, both internationally and domestically here in the United States, it's not going to happen this year. You're not going to see USA Crits teams suddenly capable of paying their women a living wage because the European teams can't even do that either at the continental pro level. We're talking about the Cyclists Alliance, the labor union for women's professional cycling, and the survey that they put out every year for the last couple of years about salary, wages, and other issues that are directly facing women. And I've got Lily Williams, who's going to stop by and help me make sense of all of this for you so that you can have intelligent conversations with your friends on group rides and in the community around us as a whole so that we can be armed to make those next steps, to make those demands for the future. Because it isn't, and as Lily says, it isn't necessarily about her and the people who she's riding with today that we are doing this for. This is for the Olivia Rays and the people who will come after her. The rookies, the new, the young, the juniors who are looking at this sport and saying, is this something that I want to make a living doing? Is this something that I want to spend the next X number of years of my life trying to do? And only when we've got this group of people who are capable of sustaining themselves entirely and exclusively through this sport can we talk about broad base reforms because it's that level that endemic support that we need in order to make things truly professional in cycling speaking about truly professional and that is mostly tongue-in-cheek but i'd like to think that we here at the wide angle podium are doing a really good job of providing you with entertainment and information about bike racing in all different varieties, whether it be cyclocross, gravel racing, Zwift racing, nonsense and lunacy that is the Slow Ride podcast. We've got it all for you. Head on over to wideanglepodium.com to check out the full lineup of shows. Head on over to the YouTube channel to look at what Bill Shiken is doing or what Matt Little Guy Allen is doing. We'd love for you to become a member of the network and help support this content creator-owned effort. So, without further ado, let's get into today's episode with Lily Williams of Rally Cycling. Instead of all of the normal accoutrement that I would do or the chit-chat that we could possibly get into and banter about all these wonderful things, we have just way too much to talk about here. So I'm joined again today by Lily Williams of Rally Cycling because she's lived it. She's been there. She's been a professional women's bike racer. She's seen from the good, the bad, the inequitable, and the possibilities of it. So we're here to talk about pay in women's cycling, and we're here to talk about this survey that came out back in the fall with uh, from the Cyclist Alliance that talks about the issues associated with women's pay in professional bike racing. And when we say that, we're not just talking about road racing. It's across the board, cyclocross, mountain bike track, all of it. 
Lily, I know that you've actually had real world experience with the Cyclists Alliance. So rather than me try to explain to people who they are and what they are, tell us who is it, what do they do, how are you engaging with them as a pro bike racer? Yeah. So the Cyclist Alliance is, um, for lack of a better description, the the women's cycling union for um, international cycling, international women's cycling. They offer all sorts of resources from legal advice to um, the surveys, of course, that you mentioned that help us kind of understand where the state of women's cycling is financially to people that can counsel you in terms of navigating the world of negotiating a contract or um, a salary with a women's team and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, We actually just had a call with the Cyclist Alliance a few weeks ago to kind of catch us up to speed on what they've been up to. And we've elected one of our teammates, Heidi Franz, to kind of be our liaison. Um, I know Sarah Poitavin on Rally has also done some work with the Cyclist Alliance And basically the goal is just to inform female cyclists of the resources that are available to us to provide resources to an under traditionally underrepresented body of people, which is us and kind of help us navigate making a living in this crazy, weird sport that we're in. The important thing is, is the idea that you as a professional women's bike racer, as a professional athlete, You deserve to make a living wage. You deserve to make a living off of the activity that you spend 20 hours, 30 hours, however many hours a week doing. And the reality is, unfortunately, and this we'll get to in much more detail shortly, is that that's just not the case. It's not the case for women at the pro-conti level. It's definitely not the case for women at the domestic level. But you know, if you do, if listeners do want to hear some more directly about this, I first became involved in this and heard about it through the freewheeling podcast with Abby Mickey. Abby happens to be an alumna of kind of both of our organizations here. She's retired cyclist from Rally, and she also used to be a guest co-host on the Slow Ride podcast, which is another show here on the Wide Angle Podium. She has her own show, and she... And Iris Slappendell, I, I, I'm probably butchering that name, sat down this fall to have a discussion about what the Cyclist Alliance is in more detail. So go after you listen to this, of course, listen to that for some more detail. I wanted to start this conversation out with kind of this taboo. The taboo is that we don't talk about salaries. Growing up, In the Midwest, the one thing we always, always, always talked about was how much it costs. You would buy a new car and your uncle would come over and be like, oh, Rob, that's a great car. How much it costs you? (laughs) Or you'd you'd buy a, a, a computer. And it was always the same questions, but we never talked about how much you weigh, how much you make in wages. That was taboo. That was insulting. It was like not a careful conversation to have. Why is it, do you think, that we have this taboo? That is a great question, Rob. (laughs) I wish I had the answer for you. I do think it's not, it's absolutely not a taboo that's exclusive to cycling. It's a taboo that applies to all people in the workplace. On Rally, we've definitely talked about it. I think we've all determined that it's a really important thing. If you're trying to negotiate a salary, you have to know 
how much your direct competitors or your teammates are making. But in terms of the real world, I think that it's a status thing, right? And you possibly ask that question and you hear information that you don't want to hear, which is that someone's making more than you or even worse, someone who is less qualified than you is making more money than you because they're a man or because they're white or because of whatever. So I do think that um, cycling is just one little facet of this. And I do think it's also exacerbated in cycling because many of us are pretty young and we don't have that real world experience of negotiating contracts in any way. Um, Many of us have educations, but not a lot of us have formal work experience where these skills would really be applicable. So there is a really great article from Planet Money, an NPR show, which talks about how the contemporary era, I'd say modern era, but we don't really know what modern is anymore. The contemporary era, the one we are living in, with the quest for racial equality, with the Me Too movement, with a lot of the transparency-driven movements that we've been experiencing these days, along with that is coming this desire for people who are co-workers to empower themselves against their employers. And now when I say that against their employers part, there is nothing wrong with adversarialism in this world. We seem to think that if you're my adversary, you're my enemy. That's not the case. You've got to separate those two words out. An adversary is just somebody who's sitting on the opposite side from you. With labor, so you've got workers and employers, it's just by nature adversarial. It's okay to talk to your fellow workers, to talk about salary, to talk about pay. And the theory is, and the sociologists and social workers and you know, people who've got PhDs and subjects that are different from, you know, what I know about as a lawyer, their theory is that if you do empower yourself and you do empower fellow coworkers to talk about the wages, it raises everybody up because you learn what is available, what is out there, that secrecy and shame or secrecy and wanting to be protective of what you have you know, that it does work against you in the long run. It may benefit you at the very beginning, but in the long run, you're not going to make as much money. You're not going to have as successful an experience. You're not going to be as happy as you could be if you just sat down and talked about it. So from your perspective with, with Rally, because you guys have been willing to talk about salaries among yourselves, what is it like? What is that conversation with with Heidi or with with Emma or with you know your newer you know rookie athletes? Do those conversations happen? How do they happen? Is it over a beer? What just tell us what's that like? Those conversations do happen organically, and I think a lot of that happens when you've spent you know three months on the road together, living in the same house. You know not just what people's salaries are, but their bathroom schedule and what they like to cook for breakfast every day and how they train and do they snore. And it just becomes an organic part of being a professional cyclist, I think, especially when the pressure's high, you're in Europe during COVID, notwithstanding. And every year around contract time, things definitely get pretty intense and serious and everyone's stressed. And we know that 
people are thinking about retiring or people are thinking about going to a different team or people are trying to negotiate a higher salary or just maintain what they've got. And so in that way, I think you really embody that kind of weird adversarial um, environment that you're talking about. But it feels it doesn't feel bad. It feels like it's just part of it especially with cycling and women's cycling, this happens every year because most contracts are only one-year contracts at the domestic level, at least. Um, So I think just having that experience year after year really makes it easier to talk about year after year, as opposed to, you know, every five years when you're trying to to renegotiate. One of the things that we were planning on talking about that I think is important to talk about now is this concept of cycling as a business. You, you made mention of the fact that there was this almost cycle that happens every single year where you've got contract negotiations and performance and all of that stuff. Pull it back for us and talk about sport as a business in the United States, cycling as a business in the United States. How is it from the inside? We could have a whole other podcast about sport as a business in the United States, I think. I mean, I've only been, I mean, if you count a collegiate career where you're trying to basically negotiate a scholarship um, for uh, your sporting performance. Um, you can kind of count that as, I guess, sport as a business experience. But obviously, the NCAA is this entirely different, wild <laughs> environment that is in some ways applicable, in some ways not. If you're not a basketball player or a football player or a hockey player or somebody in a sport that is very popular in Europe, uh, like tennis or golf or sailing or something a little more niche like that, then it is very, very difficult to make a living as an athlete in the United States. A, it's because the sports that are most popular are those that have the highest entertainment value that are televised, that can be um, heavily marketed. Um, And we saw this in college as well. Once again, going back to the NCAA, where you have collegiate football players who are making their universities millions of dollars a year, but then they get called whiny or entitled if they want, you know, more than their $15,000 a year scholarship. Um, Or, you know, they want to be able to leverage their skills to make money in the offseason. And the NCAA says you can't do that, even though any other student in college could take their skills they're learning at school and go and get a scholarship. Um, And I think... Sport as a business in the U.S. is heavily influenced by the popular opinion surrounding athletes that, once again, could take another podcast in and of itself with this view that athletes should be role models in this view that um, athletes operate in this tier of society where they um, receive a lot of things that normal people don't receive and that life is pretty easy. So I think sport as a business is really, really challenging. We have seen the most successful cycling teams in the U.S. exist. They've existed for a long time. Rally has existed for, you know, a decade now, and it's gone through a number of phases with Kelly Benefits and Optum and United Healthcare. And um, Tibco, which is the longest running women's team, has existed for over a decade. And these two teams really support their riders, but it's not easy. It's a huge operation. The business minds are uh, exceptional. I don't really have much of a mind for business at all. So, Um, they, you know, do stuff that I don't understand and that's how they secure funding and that's how they get sponsors and that's how they get partners. And obviously on rally, the fit really works in the U S because 
rallies promoting an active lifestyle and making healthy choices and being mentally healthy and, and taking care of yourself. And so a cycling team really fits with that image. But sport as a business as a whole uh, is a very um, nebulous environment here in the United States, I think. Well, I mean, and you're you're double dipping when it comes down to the nebulous nature of it, because not only are you dealing with professional bike racing, but you're also dealing with U.S. Olympics and the fact that the U.S. Olympic team is not funded the same way that your competitors are in Europe, for example. One hundred percent. And people are astonished when I tell them this, that the U.S. pay structure from the Olympic Committee is based on results and based on winning world championships and um, performance. And in other countries, Olympic hopefuls, not even their final Olympic team, receive a a base salary from their government to train and to live and to be athletes. Um, So as one of the best sporting countries in the world, it seems laughable to people that we aren't directly funded. But then at the same time, I bet if you did a survey of most Americans, they would say they didn't want their tax dollars going to sports. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's quite a weird situation. um, And it can be very frustrating to hear people talk about, you know, how much money people are, you know, athletes are making and what their societal obligations are. And we're just like, we're just trying to get by, man. A lot of us are just trying to race because we love it and represent our sponsors and do a good job. And this is sad because I remember distinctly 1997, the two Prefontaine movies that came out that year. Yeah. And, you know, Steve Prefontaine, famous runner for the U.S. national team in the 60s, tragically died in a car accident. But he was like, the movie showed him leading the charge against AAU sports, which was, you know, at that point in time, kind of in control over the U.S. Olympic scene and how he was pushing to professionalize sports and how he was arguing that his 10,000 meter competitors were being paid by the countries that they lived in. And you, you see the end of that movie and you're just like, Oh, well, the problem has been solved now, clearly, (laughs) but it hasn't. You're still here. You're still talking about the exact same problem that they were talking about in 1972 and 1968, 1964. Nothing, nothing has changed. And I don't know why we have the science to prove that athletes continue to develop way past the time that they're 24 years old, way past the time that they traditionally leave college. And so your best years as an athlete could be when you're 28, when you're 32, when you're 36, especially for women who get so much better as they age, but they get forced out of the business of the industry of the sport because they just can't support themselves anymore. And so I think this is the perfect time for us to pivot to the Cyclist Alliance survey. Before we get there, I want to ask you, you know, straight up, do you feel, given the way that your structure is right now, that you are living a sustainable financial model for five years, 10 years down the line? Well, I think we need to look at that from another frame, which is millennials in the workplace, which is me as a college graduate in 2016. I've obviously had to, uh, I didn't plan on being a professional athlete. I was planning on navigating at that time, the nebulous world of, you know, research, scientific research, maybe industry, maybe medical. And then 
my whole, you know, career path changed when I went to journalism school. And then I was expecting to either a go to a small town and live and work at a corporate publication for 20 years before I, you know, earned a position at a larger <laughs> media production company or, you know, be a freelancer and kind of have to, you know, work the gig economy of finding jobs for myself day after day and, and kind of hoping it worked out. So when I look at my life as an athlete, it definitely feels like it fits into into that anyway. It's been getting significantly more challenging um, training for the Olympic selection, um, you know, now training upwards of 25 hours a week if you incorporate all of the additional stuff that you have to do to maintain your health and your body and get eight hours of sleep a night and avoid COVID and all of that. So um, it's become challenging as I also work part-time for a nonprofit, which I have since 2017 when I graduated school. So I think like a lot of millennials, I have multiple sources of income. Um, Sport being the big differentiator in that I'm pretty much exhausted all of the time from training. I think that we'll have to continue to evolve in terms of what I can do. I don't think the way I'm living right now is sustainable for 10 years. Absolutely not. But I think each year it gets a little easier. Each year I get a little more streamlined. Each year I become more of an expert in my body and in my job. But I know everyone's different. I don't think any of us do the same combination of um, money-making things in the sport of cycling. And it's amazing. We are not that far apart in age. I'm Gen X, so I'm the youngest of the Gen Xers, but I have only had two jobs in my life. And one of them was a, one of them was a term job. I knew that being a clerk for a a Supreme court justice in Mississippi was a term position. I was going to leave and I did it. And then I got my current job and I've been there for the last 15 plus years which really pushes me away from the gig economy, but I totally understand how that works. So let's talk salary issues. Let's talk Cyclist Alliance survey. First off, I think it's important to point out what we're not talking about. This is not a conversation about disparity in pay between men and women in bike racing. That issue itself could fill up an entire podcast. This discussion is about the status of women's pay vis-a-vis the pay of women in other professions. So in journalism, in law, in medicine, in teaching, in education, in a whole variety of different business professions, we're using the data that we have that's available to us, which comes from the Cyclist Alliance. That data doesn't have information about men's salaries anyway, so it's, you know, kind of irrelevant. In addition, I don't want to distract us. I want to be focused here on education and awareness among the bike racing community of the basic facts regarding what will become very clear soon, the lack of wages for women professional bike racers. I just want that phrase to sit and settle in with people. Calling yourself a pro, having a professional license, and not getting paid at all. So... Let's talk statistics. Let's talk surveys. Let's talk all of it. And I am so glad that you're here to talk about the surveys and statistics because you have an educational and academic background in in this exact topic. So here are the limits. And this is as a lawyer, as I would approach any sort of expert who's heavy in statistics, 
economists, accountants, you know, epidemiologists, people who talk in big numbers, you always, 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 after you first figure out whether or not two plus two equals four in their spreadsheets, you start to dig in on how they acquired the data, how they process the data, what it looks like. So here's the data. A hundred cyclists were, were, were surveyed or provided answers. We don't have any demographic information about them or their specific discipline in the sport. We know 10 of them were mountain bikers. That is it. So the data pool is limited. It's self-selecting and extrapolating beyond that is kind of going to be tough, but this is the best information that we've got. So looking at that, Lily, looking at those facts, what are some of the things we need to be concerned about when we come from a purely statistical analysis? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head um, when you said self-selecting, because the people who are, first of all, motivated to take the survey are the people who feel like things need to change. So the data is already going to be skewed in that way. There's obviously a very small data set here. You know, ideally, we'd have a selection of thousands of female cyclists because that's how many there are. And that's how many I wish this survey had reached so we could learn a little bit more about what people are thinking. Have you taken the survey? I did take the survey. Uh, I don't remember every question on the survey, but I've taken it. I've taken it at least twice. So I must have taken it in 2019 and then again in 2020 because it is something I care about, even though I feel as if I am pretty stable in my cycling career at this point. I think obviously the more people who are well supported, the better cycling is going to be for everybody and the happier people are going to be and the less the matriculation. And then to go back to to the survey and some of your early points, I do think it's important to make a comment that, you know, domestic men's racing is is not any better than domestic female salaries right now. Rally is the one team that has uh, qualified for the base, the minimum base salary. And um, they're doing that by racing in Europe. Um, and I do think that it is 100% possible as a female cyclist to make a good racing when, excuse me, uh, make a good racing. It is what I am trying to do every day on my bike. Um, it is possible to make a great living um, riding and racing in Europe where the fan base is and where the sport is popular and where there are s serious returns on investment by sponsors and um, obviously still things to improve with coverage and women's cycling. But yeah, I think you kind of hit the, the nails on the head with any sort of discrepancies or inconsistencies or ways that survey data may be skewed. As I've come to learn, because uh, I actually tore open the UCI rule books on this, and they are not, shall we say, the easiest things to read, and they don't necessarily make a lot of sense. But if you if you have enough screens open on your computer, you can start to piece together what section 2.1 and 2.1.5.3 all say. <laughs> but, but yeah. For women's cycling, there are two categories of professional women's team. There's the world tour teams, so your Trek Segafredos, and then there's the continental pro teams, which Rally is a continental pro team. At the Conti Pro level, there is no minimum salary requirement. At the world tour, there is a requirement. And now this has been the subject of a lot of articles on cycling tips or Velo News or cycling news. So you can see how it's progressed over the last three, four, five years, this idea of the Women's World Tour and the minimum salary requirement. However, 
you know, when you look at it, broad scopes, in 2021, there are only 10 women's world tour team licenses available. The UCI has been slowly growing the total number. Those riders have a minimum salary of 20,000 euros. Now, I did a conversion to dollars so that we're talking dollars and it makes sense because euros are pretty things that look kind of like monopoly money to me when I look at them. So 20,000 euros, about $24,300. At the Conti Pro level, so the second level, there are currently 49 women's teams registered. The vast majority of them come from Europe and specifically from Western Europe, from industrialized countries. Only six of those teams come from the Americas, North or South America. In fact, they come specifically from the United States with TIBCO and Rally and Illuminate and DNA, or from Canada with Instafund and a Quebec-based team whose name is in French, and I will not even try to pronounce it because I'm going to pronounce it wrong. This means that these teams, their ownership, their business leaders, their marketing end, and most of the riders are coming mostly from countries with developed workers' rights and legal systems. And mostly European, if we're talking about cycling specifically. And they're not cheap countries either to live in. Yeah. I mean, you... Go to go to London. Try to live in London off of twenty five thousand euros or twenty five thousand pounds. Here, you're not going to do a good job. But in the United States, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, and we live in a census year, so twenty twenty just passed, so we've got some great information for a single person household. And I chose single person because a lot of the women who are in the pro bike Conti Pro level are single people. They they don't have husbands or partners or children because, you know, for a certain extent of them, they're, they're young. The poverty line in the United States for a single person is $13,000 a year. That's just under 11,000 euro. If we look at the results from Cyclist Alliance, 46% of the women who responded are paid less than the poverty line for their work as a pro bike racer. 25% of the total are paid nothing at all. How, how is this possible that we have people who are professional athletes who are not making a living wage? It's, it's definitely more astonishing to me that people racing in Europe would not be making money. Because as we've already discussed, cycling is just not a popular sport in the US. It's not something that attracts sponsors. You know, you could blame Lance, you could blame whatever, the cost it takes to put on a bike race in the US. You could blame car culture. But when you go to Europe and you see how popular cycling is over there, it is certainly more astonishing because knowing what it takes to race at the world tour level. And I mean, I really haven't even raced that much at the world tour level. Certainly not. I haven't been in a position where I'm winning races in Europe. It's, it's a hard, it's a really hard life, but I do think, and to not be paid for that is really shocking, but I do think that in the U S we have a lot of alternatives. Most female cyclists are pretty well-educated and many male cyclists are well-educated too. And 
being a predominantly white sport, we all have, not all of us, of course, but a lot of us have safety nets we can fall back on. But if you look at the typical strata of, you know, Belgians racing cyclocross, they don't have that many options. They, you know, could be, they could work on a farm or they could drive a truck or they could try as hard as hell to become a professional bike racer. And so they will tolerate a lot of that in ways that I think Americans have learned is not necessarily um, something that should or is worth tolerating. Um, And I think that's why we see a lot of really good European cyclists compared to um, the proportion of cyclists in the US that are making it in Europe. But it also just means the matriculation rate is pretty severe. You know, we're talking about 25% of people not being paid at all. But there is 43% of the respondents to the survey had to reimburse their team for services like medical or bikes or travel. So now, like, what's the point? I mean, that's, I, as a college athlete, I didn't have to reimburse the University of Kansas for my for my Speedo, and I'm definitely not giving it back to them, so. <laughs> Actually, complete segue. Uh, apparently, my dad was trying to do do something with his alma mater a couple years back, and they said, you can't, and my dad, my dad's 60, and they said, oh, well, you can't do this until you pay your outstanding dues to the university. And apparently he had like kept his swim team sweats from racing at the University of Wisconsin. And you know, they were just like champion or, you know, cotton sweats. And since he had taken them and not paid for them, he like had this outstanding credit against him. Um, so some some collegiate athletes are, I suppose, required to to pay their teams or at that point were required to pay their teams. But that's, you know, just a funny story. But yeah, I mean, personally for me, it is it would not be worth it. Um, and once again, I can say that because I have a safety net and I have an education and I'm not going to go to Europe and um, get seriously injured and then have to reimburse a team for medical costs. It just is completely not worth it to me. Um, but for someone who does not have options or who does not see that those options exist, um, I can see why they would want to do it. Um, and when I first started riding, uh, I would have done anything for any amount of money just because I loved it. I was like, you know, I put 30,000 miles on a car my first year driving to races to guest ride with teams and to just do the thing because I had no other obligations. And I I mean, I understand cycling's amazing and cycling's fun. And to be able to race as a professional is something that's really special and, and doesn't last for a long time in your life. And you really cherish it until it starts to get really, really hard. And then you can't support yourself. And then, uh, you, you know, you got to start thinking about what's worth it and what's not. So there's a dollar number here, 40,000 euro. It's about $48,000, uh, you know, U.S. money. So it's a, it's a specific dollar that I'm bringing up because 18% of the professional Peloton. Now, this includes world tour teams who have a minimum salary requirement of 40,000 euro. Um, or, I'm sorry, I probably was incorrect in that 20,000 euro is the the minimum salary for world tour, but we're, we're working with this $48,000 number. And so I bring this up because according to the 2020 census.gov data, the median female non-family household, it's the 
government's very less than direct way of saying single women made $41,000 a year. So that's the median female salary for a single woman in the United States. Among those that were full-time, so year-round employees, that number was higher. It was 47000 just right about that $48,600 mark that 18% of the professional Peloton is making. Just to make sure that my math was right. Now, I there are, there are a few parts of the government that I absolutely adore. One of them is the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. And I love them not because their office is on my bike route. It literally is on the bike path right there by Union Station. But they come out and they're like, stop, we have a survey. You have to take. <laughs> take this survey. Tell us all about your bike. But um, they publish tons of charts and statistics and data. And so I use them a lot in my profession when I deal with injuries and lost salaries, lost wages. So like this is a, a place that I go to with some frequency. According to the statistics that they publish, 57% of women in the United States are currently in the workforce. If you look at uh, women 44 or 25 to 64, so this, you know, beefy age where most of the workforce is, 44% of those women have bachelor's degrees. And if you dial in for this very specific, and I know that we're getting really heavy with data and statistics and it's starting to feel like an episode of the West Wing, but if you look at the age group that makes up the professional Peloton, 25 to 44, that's the age cohort that the Bureau of Labor and Statistics has, the median wage for women with a bachelor's degree is $44,000. That's just consistent across the board, median wage, 44000 47000 You know, it's all right there. Again, that is right there with the top 18% of the professional female Peloton. And now you may yell at me because I didn't use women who are younger than 25. Well, the reason is, is the BLS statistics lump them together with high school students. And so it, I discounted it. But like the median female salary in the United States is equal to the top salary in the professional female Peloton. That just can't continue. I mean, at that point in time, again, why stay in the Peloton? You know, why, why not have another career? Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, as we've already talked about, the timeline on a professional sport career is, is this much. Although, as you already mentioned, for women, the timeline is significantly longer than the potential timeline for men, especially in endurance sports. Whereas, you know, you think I could do the sport for a little bit and then go do something else that's lucrative. I know that more lucrative. I know that is definitely the attitude of a lot of people that I race against. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly frustrating to hear. I've definitely heard other female cyclists complain about how much, you know, so-and-so is making. and you know, I try to say, let's take a step back. Don't you want to be as good as that person? And don't you think that as, you know, the best female cyclist in the world, they should probably be making more than that. And people are like, yeah, you know, you're right. And I think we kind of backed what you were saying about adversary versus enemy. 
I think we pit, we pit ourselves against each other sometimes and we don't always advocate for each other in the way that's best. I'm not saying that's why female cycling salaries are significantly lower than the median single female income in the United States. But I do think we need to completely adjust our standards of what a professional cyclist should make. And I think what that comes from is a the popularization of women's cycling, which is, you know, a catch-all for like what can we do better? But I think that is that's happening. It's happening slowly but more less slowly than you would think. Um, more and more races are being televised. Women's cyclocross is truly popping off. I mean, it is so exciting to watch and usually, I mean, I like to watch Wout and Vanderpool smash each other just as much as the next person. But what I really want to see is like Lucinda, Lucinda Brand go against Betsema, go against Verst, go against Celine, go against Clara Hansinger. Like the appeal of women's cycling is growing. And I think we've seen that reflected with the change, the establishment of the women's world tour, the minimum salary, the fact that 10 women's teams now can offer that minimum salary and that you have continental teams like Rally offering a minimum salary of their own. Um, and making steps to reach that next level, I think it's it's moving in the right direction. And unfortunately, that that comes at the cost of like, you know, you could do all this work and make thirty thousand euro now, and what you're really going to be doing is benefiting the female cyclist in four years who is on a Conti team and in, in with the minimum salary of thirty thousand euro. But it's certainly something that just has to be done. You know, I'm willing to do this as long as I can because I like being good at it, for one. <laughs> I mean, I imagine going into the workforce and I'm like, well, I'm not good at that. And I'm not good at that. And I'm not good at that. So I'll just stick with this <laughs> for now. Yeah. I mean, if I were looking at a career where I thought my salary cap was $40,000 in cycling for the rest of time, it would be a huge turnoff. But I see potential for growth. I see potential for making a real living out of it. And I have friends in Europe who are making a real living in cycling. So you have three new teammates, three female new teammates this year. Uh, Madeline, Olivia, and Katie. Is that the three? Yep. The question I'm going to ask is give them some advice. Talk to them. Give them encouragement. I, I'm not exactly sure what the way is that I'm going to say this, but that's kind of the, the gist of it. But I'm going to tell a story first because I, I had a whole bunch of really corny jokes within the course of the story that I worked up on a bike ride recently and I wanted to tell those. So <laughs> when I graduated from law school in 2005, I had a clerkship with the Supreme Court and so I was of Mississippi. I want to make sure that I'm clear about that one. There are two totally different levels there. But you know, I had this clerkship. And so during that time, I got to think about what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go, where I wanted to work. My starting salary with the Supreme Court of Mississippi was $35,000. It, you know, coming out of law school, that's not a tremendous amount of money, especially compared to your classmates who are making $160,000 in New York for their first year. But I was doing good work and I liked what I was doing and I knew that I was paying forward to the future. I knew that it, that clerkship would be an opportunity to work for something bigger and better. But the question was, well, what comes next? Because I could only maximum stay there for two years. Any longer, and it starts to get awkward, especially when my justice retired. So, um, you know, that was kind of 
the the that was the benchmark that I need. That was the brick wall that I was going to run into. So one of the places that I really wanted to work was the Corporation Council for the City of Chicago. It's basically the Chicago law firm, the Department of Justice for the city. And I had this opportunity to work in what they called the individual defense section, which turns out was fortuitous that I never took that opportunity because that was the section that defends police officers accused of police brutality and all sorts of negative, terrible things. And I would have been the guy starting in 2006. So there's been a few things in Chicago that have happened since then that have not reflected well upon the police force there. But the starting salary there was $44,000. I knew that I could suffer through one year for $35,000. I deferred my loans. I did everything that I could because I knew that there was opportunities coming in the future. But I just couldn't in a good conscious say $44,000 was going to be enough for student debt, for car loans, for living in the city because you were required to live in the city of Chicago. You know, like any of that stuff just wasn't going to be enough. But I was paying it forward. Fortunately, I got a higher paying job that allowed me to live a little bit better life, but I still had to spend the first six months, seven months eating off cardboard boxes and stealing my neighbor's cable or internet. <laughs> Having that in kind of the theory or the thesis that you are looking forward to the future, you are looking forward to building better for you, for those people that come behind you. Talk to Olivia, talk to Madeline, talk to Katie. What would you tell them about, here's the reality, but here's the shining city on the hill that you could have? I mean, it's not a perfect system, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have a completely predatory loan system in the United States that preys on people who will, you know, literally never get a job that pays off their student loans. But as athletes, what we do is we track our progress every single day. We say, how can I get better today? And how will getting better today make me better in five years? And we have these very incremental blocks. Like, you know, I started racing collegiate. I did a year of collegiate racing. And then that allowed me to jump into like domestic racing. And that allowed me to jump into UCI racing. And eventually I'm like, okay, now I want to go race in Europe. And then, you know, I don't want to go just, I don't want to just go do the smaller races in Europe. I want to do the world tour races in Europe. And now I want to go to the Olympics. So there's like these very concrete markers of progression and achievement in professional sport and in cycling specifically as because that's what we're talking about that really foster an ability to to hope for building a career out of a sport as opposed to just getting by and racing which of course there's nothing wrong with like at some point i hope to race a mountain bike and i certainly will just be getting by you know what i mean <laughs> so the best thing i could tell people who are just starting out is is to get on a team get on a team that's going to take you to give you those opportunities to jump to that next step. And, you know, for me, that first team was Superman. And then, you know, I'm on rally now and rally's taking the steps that are necessary to become a world tour team and to provide us with careers that um, allow us to a race at the highest level and B make it a sustainable living. So I don't think I would do it if I didn't see that there was any sort of hope in it, you know, because I could be <laughs> scrabbling as a journalist. <laughs> Being on a, on a team like Rally is, is an awesome place to be. And I think 
especially when you can go and race at a high level without any pressure, because there are people on the team that will be expected to perform and people on the team who will be expected to learn. I mean, I feel like I'm still going over to Europe, like hope I make it through, but it's kind of probably the best spot you could be in as a domestic rider. Of course, it's different for everyone. I mean, you and I could have a whole other discussion about how the U.S. should just 100% pivot to criterium racing and then everyone would be making a ton of money and getting to like hang out and have fun at Tulsa or do whatever. But, you know, I think uh, there are certainly, I see opportunities. They exist and they're not worth giving up on because things are not awesome for all of us right now. Well, give us that elevator pitch, the 30 second, one minute pitch as to why that idea of pivoting to crits. Just let's do it. Every mid-sized town in the United States, throw together a festival, put a crit as the centerpiece of your Saturday night, open up all the bars, put the rock band out there in the in the gazebo in the middle of it, bring the best men and women around together and have them throw down. You know, you're going to get people there. I mean, I showed up in Scranton. Never been there before, but I showed up in Scranton and like I entertained some people for 15, 20 laps before I got blown off the back. So give us that elevator pitch. Yeah. Do you want to have fun? Do you want to win cash preems and chamois cream preems? Do you want to drink beer after the race is over? Do you want to be a physical specimen? Do you want to ride on a super sick course with actual people watching and cheering instead of the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere with the drone? Then crit racing may be for you. Well done. You you are the official spokesperson for Criterium Racing in the United States now. Thank you. So thank you. When when you started with Rally, when you actually negotiated a contract with Rally, did you have help? No. Uh, I did not. And I feel pretty confident in those kinds of settings, but they're certainly um, super intimidating. And I think if I were to sign with the World Tour team, then I would need a legal representative because I think women are very often taken advantage of, um, especially because most of them do not have legal representation. Um, And then people sign contracts that uh, are manipulated. Uh, You hear stories and stories of people who sign contracts that are just completely not followed. Um, and then what you're going to like pursue, you know, fighting that legally. It's just with the sal- with the salary you have, like it's not going to happen. The, the reason I bring it up is because the survey also found that an extreme minority of women actually had legal representation in their contract negotiations. And the role that Cyclist Alliance is playing as a labor union is unusual And even, I think this week, we saw yet again how the UCI was not taking the Cyclist Alliance seriously as a labor union because nobody was invited to their, um, their, it was like a safety meeting or something of that nature, and they just blew the Cyclist Alliance off. Because obviously the super tuck and elbows on bars is the most critical thing that we should be worrying about and not courses that have downhill corners within... 200 meters of the finish and a roundabout thrown in there too. But when you go, when, when you're 22 years old, when you're 23 years old and you're, you're presented with an opportunity to race your bike professionally, my guess is that most 
people, women, men, whoever it happens to be, are going to do everything in their power not to rock the boat. It, have you ever heard of, of an athlete saying, well, I was going to ride for XYZ team, but I decided not to because, you know, the contract that they had given me didn't include, you know, a choice of law provision or something like that. No, definitely not. I mean, my experience with with contract negotiation across the board is is not that much. Um, yeah, I'd be willing to bet that people my age negotiating contracts in any field are, I'm sure most people do not have some sort of legal representation. Um, A, because you don't want to rock the boat. B, because you can't afford it. Um, I do know people who have athlete agents. Maybe they're not lawyers, but they at least have the experience and wherewithal to guide people through that process. And I definitely consulted my coach a lot, my coach, Allison Powers at the time, because she had um, obviously ridden for many years, ridden for UHC, had experience negotiating that contracts and had experience um, knowing what a rider like myself or herself was worth. So to go back, no, I didn't have legal representation, but I definitely had advice and assistance. And I feel lucky to have had her um, as a coach and mentor. And I, I do think a lot of people rely on their coaches, but this is only sort of tangentially related, but I was reading something um, recently about a journalist who was getting recruited by re- recruited to leave one publication to go to another publication. And they some clause was written in their contract about how they had freedom of expression on social media or whatever. And so she decided to test it by tweeting a bunch of like aggressively outlandishly um, left-leaning statements. And then from the people who were trying to hire her, they sent her an email and were like, look, you know, this, if we hire you, this is going to be a problem. She didn't take the job. So I think that, um, not all of us are in a room, in a position to say, I'm going to test the waters and see how it goes, um, with cycling. But that is certainly something that would be really useful to have those skills to do. And that's why it's so critical that, there are organizations like Cyclist Alliance or trade unions, just in general. Yeah, I didn't know the Cyclist Alliance provided that kind of service, to be honest with you, until our call with them a few weeks ago. And that was the thing that stood out most to me. I was like, holy crap, Like I could ask these people for help if I need to. I'm like, because that seems like such a big thing, you know, finding out not only like finding help, but vetting people who are going to help you. And the fact that they have people who would be approved to do that, just like Rally has team doctors available for us to call and be like, hey, I have this massively fucked up saddle sore. Can you please help me the way a regular doctor wouldn't understand? Like the Cyclist Alliance providing that service is awesome. And we all wish that USAC or the UCI could be these benevolent organizations that had the capacity to do this for their riders. And to a certain extent, they do. You know, the UCI has a model contract out there that that you could look at. And, you know, I sent it to another lawyer friend of mine, and we issue spotted that model contract. And, yeah, we found <laughs> we found a lot of holes in it that you could you could drive a truck through. And, you know, what is a labor union? A labor union is an organization designed to help and promote the members of it. It's just like the Major League Baseball Players Association or the NFL Players Association. These are organizations that are dedicated to doing one thing, representing the people who are within its group. And 
again, going back to the adversarial versus, you know, enemy sort of analysis, it's like that's that is exactly what it's there for. Those organizations, those trade unions are there to help advocate on behalf of their riders. And there's so much progress that can be done by becoming a part of it. And so one thing that I would love to encourage people to do is go to the Cyclist Alliance. You can become a member. Even if you're just some bro like me in in Washington, D.C., you can go to the Cyclist Alliance and you can become a member and that contribution will support the work that they are doing internationally. So keep in mind, this is an organization from Europe that's doing work across the entire world. They are not specialists in anything specific, but they are specialists in everything in general. So, you know, go there. You can actually, if I remember correctly, you can adopt a rider. Oh, adopt me! <laughs> 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 and, and help and help pay for their membership within it. But I wanted I wanted to close here with this concept of having an attorney and taking a deep dive look at your contract. Now the issue is attorneys cost money. And if you're one of the 25% who are getting paid nothing, then that's going to be really hard to justify having an attorney spending an hour looking at it. But if you are making money, enough money, and you want to continue doing this, you know, do dig into that idea of hiring an attorney. You know, one of the things that I brought up within the confines of the discussion was a choice of law. That is a very important issue about what law is going to govern the contract that you have. Because if you're riding for, you know, a European team, but you're here in the United States, is it going to be the law of that European country? Is it going to be the law of the United States? If you're on a team in the United States, there's so much difference between, you know, Illinois law and California law on contracts that without negotiating the specific law that could apply, you run into the problem of, well, now we got to figure out what state is in charge of this and that's just going to cost you extra money. And having somebody look at it from a lawyer's perspective is not designed to cause problems. It's actually designed to create certainty. And so you remove the problem from it. That's what lawyers in their true form are there to do. They're there to solve problems before they become an issue that requires getting somebody like me, a litigator involved, whose you know sole purpose is to... My sole purpose is a lot of things. So I'm just going to stop that because my boss actually listens to these podcasts. So, But it's so critical. So pausing for a second, looking at the contract that you're signing, getting advice, getting a take from somebody who's been there, you know, is so critical, even if it's not an attorney, even if it's just somebody who's come before you, Allison in your case, or... I'm sure you could turn to Joanne Kizanowski. She's she's been there. She's seen that. She's done it, you know. And and paying that forward, because I know that the 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 18 year old who's listening to this show, who's just like, I might be a pro someday. Look at that stuff. Have somebody look at it. You know, like I'd willingly offer my services, but ethnically, ethically, I'm not allowed. So I'm sorry. I had I I dodged that bullet. But you know. 
I'd already written you know, a note in my planner to contact you in August, <sighs> but I guess I'll cross it out, even though it's in pen. It's fine. Okay. I can give you some <laughs> advice on somebody else and I'll get a referral fee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't take a fee for the referral. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I just want people to know that there is help out there and the Cycles Alliance would do or will do a health check, and which is what you talked about. And I think that's so super critical. And I wish we had a purely American version of the Cyclist Alliance. You know, I don't know if we'll ever reach a critical mass where that would work for us, but we've got a lot of U.S.-based teams. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at the very basic level, the Cyclist Alliance has A, a model contract, and B, a whole flagging system that you can use to review your own contract. And so at the basic level, they're empowering us to do things that we can't outsource. But, you know, one more comment on your, I did, I really enjoyed the theme of adversarial versus enemies. Um, There's another union um, in female cycling called the CPA, the Cyclists Professional. It's French, so I'm reading this and I don't know how to say any of it, but it's called the CPA. And um, we had a talk with the woman who, is part of that. We were all together in Europe. And, um, you know, our first instinct was to be kind of combative because we're like, why are you diluting the unions that we could be part of? But, you know, they're integrated with the UCI. So they already have kind of a step that the Cyclist Alliance doesn't, but are, you know, lacking in ways that the Cyclist Alliance is excelling in. So I think um, embracing all the opportunities to have our voices heard is super important. Um, and the more we do that, the more of these resources, resources are going to be out there. The more of us who know like, Hey, it's worth $200 of your salary to have an agent look over this to make sure that, you know, you're making an additional $20,000 and not, you know, getting gypped by that much. So yeah, I think you're completely right that knowing those resources exist is the first step. The fact that you ask a question about a clause in a contract, or you ask a question about the way that the the game is going to be played that year with your relationship, should not, cannot, and will never be considered to be you being a problem child. I think that is the, the critical thing that the labor market, the bike racers need to realize is that we're all in this together and that you should be empowered. 100%. And that is absolutely how it is on Rally. There, the lines of communication are free flowing. We all talk, not just among the teammates, but among the staff and among the people who are setting my salary and who are asked, you know, setting the requisites that I have to fill as an Olympic athlete who may, well, potentially Olympic athlete since I haven't qualified yet, but someone who is on a path to going to the Olympics, hopefully, um, and may not be able to race as much. We can work together to figure out what I'm going to provide to the team and to our sponsors and like how I'm going to be compensated for that. And it's a discussion. It's not and doesn't feel like a negotiation. Um, and I think that does come from like we were talked about. Yeah. Coming full circle business experience and having people who know how to keep uh, keep athletes happy and healthy and hire staff that are going to support us and that we all work well with and that we're going to we're going to function as a whole business and provide value to people in the real world that's not just us like going and racing our bikes and not doing anything with that. I feel very fortunate to be part of an organization that takes away a huge chunk of that stress. Well, Lily, thank you so much for joining us. 
we are always going to be paying attention to everything that you're doing going forward towards Tokyo 2021 or Fayetteville Worlds for Cyclocross. That's my own personal quest <laughs> to get you there. But thank you so much for joining us. You can you can adopt me. <laughs> get me to Fayetteville. Thank you, Rob. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the show. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. And special thanks to Lily Williams for stopping by to help provide us with education about what it's really like out there at the World Tour and the Elite Domestic Level. Please remember to head on over to the WideAnglePodium.com to check out the full lineup of shows that we have there. And after you finish listening to this episode, you want to see some more information, we've got a ton of notes over at CriteriumNation.com. Next week, we've got a show with Eric Hill from Project Echelon, where we'll be talking about the Pro Road Tour and what it really needs and whether or not it is actually serving the community as well as it could be. We'll see you again next week with more stories from our Criterium Nation.